So again, last week I was uh, listening and reading about the increased sense of loneliness and isolation that the misuse of social media is bringing about. We've heard lots about it before and so on, but it was just, I'm not sure why it was on the media again uh, this past week, but it, but it was. And, you know, it's interesting that the most recent data that I could find for Canada is that the most uh, severely affected by this were 18 to 39-year-olds, who just this year reported uh, the highest levels of loneliness uh, at about 29.1%. Uh, or people in their age back and say that, you know what, I have, I'm experiencing loneliness, I'm experiencing social isolation, I don't feel I'm connected, I'm just sort of, I'm surrounded by all of this stuff and all of these ways to connect, but when it comes to actually being connected, being in relationship, I'm just not getting it, almost 30%. The average for, for Canada as a whole, all age brackets, is like 23%. Almost a quarter of the people experience and express what they describe as serious loneliness. I'm not sure the exact measurement of what's serious. I mean, for me, if Sheena's gone for a couple of hours in an evening, I've experienced serious loneliness. So maybe that would count. I'm not really sure. But, but somehow, whatever the people measure, they say, no, I've experienced serious loneliness. Now, anecdotally, we all know this. We've heard this as we talk to people at work and even in our neighborhoods that, that people are finding it increasingly difficult and hard to, to sort of reconnect, especially after the, what we went through with this whole COVID uh, deal. One leader that I was reading said, you know what? The, the truth is that we spent like two years, we spent sort of viewing each other as the enemy, as somebody that's a threat, somebody that's dangerous, somebody that we've got to stay away from. And, and, and now we realize that, okay, we need to, we need to get out of that, out of that mode, but we're kind of stuck in it. And so we've sort of got this expectation that our relational connectionness would be just as strong as it was before. Not that it was great before, but there's this expectation that, well, now it should be back to normal. We should be able to connect. We should be uh, in together. But, but we, we find ourselves, it's interesting that they say that people go home more exhausted now, relationally more exhausted, because they're trying to reconnect again. And they have this expectation of how it should be. And it doesn't mean that, make that mess so we try and force ourselves to do it, and it's exhausting for people. It's just the reality. Let's last week, you know, there's a Wall Street Journal article. Learn to like the most annoying person in your life was the title on it there. And as you read the article, it talks about how, how you know, it, because we've been away from each other, now we got even less patience for each other. So we just know this. It's just a reality is that we are experiencing relational Deficit. Relational deficit to one degree or another. It's sort of, you want to talk about an epidemic, it's this, it's this disconnectedness. Something's not right relationally that so many folks, maybe even everybody, are feeling. Now, we're working our way through this incredible letter uh, to the Philippians. And for the last month, we've, you, you remember that we saw back in chapter 1, verse 27, is sort of the verse that commands all the way until we've finished what we're doing today. Chapter 3 kind of starts a new theme. But that whole thing was to live your life worthy of the gospel. And then Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, begins to expand exactly what it means to live that kind of a life. And so we've talked all kinds of stuff. He said, you know, hang tough in your faith when it's difficult. Uh, love one another. Consider the interest of others above yourself. And then, and then it gave, said, but look, you know, if, if God can do this, if God can act humbly, 
in the example of Christ on the cross, becoming a bondservant and so on, then surely all go true. And then last week we said, look, how do you live it out? How do you live out this faith? I'll tell you how. You don't grumble and you don't argue. And you'd be willing to live your life as a, a drink offering poured out for the sake of other people. And now we come to this last section in chapter 2. And it's like Paul says, let me give you some real life examples of this. I mean, we've talked about Jesus, but after all, that's Jesus. You know, I mean, he's Jesus. But, but, and he's going to talk about two guys that he is saying lived this stuff out. Two examples of people that they knew there in Philippi. Timothy, who helped establish the church, and Epaphroditus, who was one of their people. And he's about to say, let me give you some examples. And what we could do is we could go back and we could trace the things that he's going to say about Timothy and Epaphroditus and see how they live out those commands that we've seen since chapter 1, verse 27. And I suppose, you know, exegetically, that's really what we should do. But I'm not going to do that. And I'll tell you why. Because every time I do a bit of a deep dive into these 12 verses that we're going to look at, I'm absolutely captured by the relational keys. Relational keys that can battle loneliness and isolation that we can find in these verses. They're just kind of sewn in there. And you might, in one sense, kind of read over them a little bit, but if we'll just stop and park you for a bit, I think we'll see it. So we're going to read the passage. Here's what I'd like you to do. Just be attuned to emotional words and relationally bonding words as we read it. Okay? So any words that describe a relationship, that how this bonded together, or any relationally emotional words, and just kind of take note of it, okay? And we'll see where we go. Okay, here we go. Philippians chapter 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. He's going to check it out. Timothy's going to report back to him, okay? I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Probably how his course battle turned out. We're not really sure. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger or your apostle, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you, and he's distressed, because you heard that he was ill. And he knows they were worried about them. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me to spur me, sorrow upon sorrow, if he would have died. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me because you're hundreds of kilometers away. 
as I read that and sort of meditated on it, I found like eight relational emotional words and seven relational bonding words just in those 12 verses. Did you, did you pick them up? Well, you will because we're going to go through them here right away. <laughs> but can you see, can you see the, the relational center of this whole thing? And basically what Paul's going to say is, listen, when it comes to living a life worthy of the gospel, it's a life that is in healthy, good relationships. To live a life worthy of the gospel is to relate well to those around us. That's kind of the brief summary. All right, so let's, let's take a look and see what are some of these relational keys? How can we, you know, if we're in this spot of, of social isolation and loneliness, what can I do to sort of break out of that bondage and, and get back to the place or get maybe for the first time in my life to the place where, where I'm in, in good relationships, life-giving relationships? Or, or if I'm not in that spot, how is it that I can reach out to other people who may be in the spot and see what I can do to, to get this web of healthy relationships uh, rebuilt and going again. All right, two main things I'm going to say. The first one is this whole idea of being grounded in Christ. <clears throat> it's our relationship in Christ which, which sort of forms the atmosphere or the ethos within which other healthy relationships take place. And so we see this, this reality is that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, that little phrase, I don't know if you noticed it, but that little phrase, in Christ, it's in there three times and it almost sneaks in there. You almost don't really notice it because it, it kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit, but don't miss it. Because being in Christ together, this is the grounding, this is the, the foundation stone which is going to make all of these other more significant relational things possible. And so we are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the grounding of our relationship. Now, you know, back in the olden days um, in the church, we, everyone used to call each other brother and sister. But now they kind of consider, you know, it's kind of corny to say, hey, brother, hey, sister, and that sort of thing. We don't really say it anymore. But you know what? I'll tell you what, if we could recover that with meaning... And if we were conscious when we talk to each other and call you sister, hey sister, hey brother, and if we absolutely lived it out, I think it would go a long way to helping us at least to somehow have that meaning. You see, this whole deal about being in Christ is that we are bound together by the blood of Jesus. Think about that. I mean, just camp out on that for a minute. We are bound together by the blood of Jesus. And the idea of this is this. There is nothing more powerful in the universe than the blood of Jesus. And this whole thing about what he's saying about in Christ is that, is that I should be so bound to you and my sense of being connected to you and my, my sense of being in with you and in Christ with you and related to you should be so strong that I can think of nothing that will break that bond. Between you and me stands Jesus holding both of our hands together, joining us together in a way that should, nothing should break it. And so when I come to a problem, you know, I'm, I'm ticked off with, I don't know, somebody or some issue or I'm hurt by them or whatever. Here's the question I need to ask. Is this hurt, is this annoyance, is it bigger for me than the blood of Jesus? Is this thing that... That, that has hurt me or that has made me feel isolated or upset me? Is it more powerful in my life than Jesus on the cross? 
Is it that important, that strong, that I'm going to break off and sever that relationship? You know, Sarah sent me an article this this past week about um, a division in the church. And actually, it was just about the evangelical church, our, our tribe. And it sort of went through and said, you know, there's sort of now like six groupings now when it comes to just evangelicalism. On the one side, there's sort of the people who are, you know, kind of hardcore. And honestly, most of the stuff has to do with political stuff. And kind of hardcore, and this is what it means to be an evangelical, and we're going to be hard on this, and we're going to be aggressive on this, and we're going to be political on it. And then on the other side of the six lines, we're like, you know what? What I've seen recently in our society of what being assigned to evangelicals, I'm not even going to use that word anymore. I'm not going to call myself anymore. I have to distance myself from that other side of things. And there's gradients in between. It's so sad. And what's especially sad, it's not division over the divinity of Christ. So much of it's political stuff, and some of it just is US political stuff. Don't you understand that in England, we just lost the prime minister? If we want to worry about something, we should be worried about England, not the United States of America. What do we care about that doing? Who cares? Our queen just died. That sounds insane, doesn't it? It's so sad that these things have become bigger to us than the blood of Jesus. We're going to disagree. Until I get you all smartened up, you're going to disagree. (laughs) But it's not bigger than the blood of Jesus. So this first thing about, about our relationship, this atmosphere, is that, listen, we are bound together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if I'm going to divide from you, it better be, I'm saying that this is more powerful to me than the blood of God. It's more powerful and more important than getting around this table and saying, yeah, we've got different ideas, we've had differences, and you know what, you kind of hurt me last week, and I was disappointed you didn't fool me, and you forgot my birthday, whatever the deal is. But we come to this table, and we're reminded that the blood of Jesus was shed to bind us together. And I'm going to come to this table, and I'm not going to say that this was bigger than the blood of Jesus to me. We're bound together in Christ. That's kind of the overall atmosphere. And then, and then sort of growing out of that being, being in Christ is the other part of the atmosphere when it comes to, you know, more, just not just intellectual stuff, is that we're also on the mission of Christ. We're on the mission of Christ. We're working together. And we all know that working together builds community. Working together builds relationships. Especially, we know sociologically, uh, with males. To, to do a project together just kind of breaks down some of these fears we have of being closer. Well, I don't know what the deal is. Whatever it is, but working together on a mission, it, it builds communities. Did you see how, look at this whole thing, the passage we read, is that Paul and Timothy and the Philippians, they were on a mission together, reconciling all creation back to God. And you see how, how helping one another and caring for one another and being on this mission and getting the kingdom forward, it bound them together. 
They bound them together. Now, we often think about our, our mission being the mission of reconciliation of, of all creation being brought back under Christ, that, you know, there are people who are estranged from God, they've got sin in our lives, that needs to be forgiven, so on, and so let's get them back together with Jesus, and, and, that, and it is, that's part of the mission. But so is loving each other, and so is serving each other, and so is taking care of each other's needs. You know, Tom Wright, when I was studying on this passage, read some of his stuff, he, he has this interesting thing. He says this, to serve Jesus and to serve his people are one and the same. When you serve me, you're serving Jesus. When I serve you, you're serving Jesus. I'm serving Jesus. It, it, it's, it's bound up together because it's, this, it's the mission of Christ. To rebuild the kingdom between us. You know, verse 30, though, in NIV it said, um, you know, to give up the help that you're going to give me. The word that's used there is, is actually the word that we get liturgy from. It, it's the word that's used as a spiritual sacrifice, a spiritual giving, an act of worship. And what he's saying is that, listen, when you love and care for the needs of others in this relational, that relational activity is experienced by God as an offering of worship up to him. You want to worship God today? Yeah, we're going to sing songs. We're going to gather on the table. We're going to, you know, hopefully dive into the word in a truthful way. But you want to know else to worship God? Serve each other. Love each other. Listen to each other. Help each other. Do whatever is necessary to meet the needs of the other person because it's an act of worship. And when we do that together, when we work shoulder to shoulder, when we are a team, relational bonds are made. If we all get together and say, oh, hey, you know what? We're all going to work on this trunk of, trunk of trees, trunk of trees, trunk of trees. Trunk or treat. <laughs> When we do that, we all say, we're all going to do this. Why? So that we can make a contact with the community, so that we can kind of put a bit of a positive spin on what's becoming an increasingly negative festival in our society called Halloween, where you know, darkness and death and all that kind of stuff is becoming increasingly dominant. No, we're going to do this. We're going to have fun. But we're, going to, we're going to work together on doing this. And I'm telling you, you'll end up working with people that you wouldn't normally work with. You're going to get to meet some people that you wouldn't normally meet with. And you're going to find out that there's connections with people that you didn't know before, and the relationships are going to develop and deeper and get better. When we minister together, it's on the mission. It builds relationships. It cuts away alienation. It gives us a sense that all of us together are into something that's bigger. And when we all work together in something that's bigger than us, it binds us together. All right, so being in Christ and being on the mission of Christ is sort of the atmosphere and now from in that atmosphere, we can sort of work out some of these other relational keys that we see. They're on the insert uh, that you have on your table to look ahead. You know, the first one is this whole idea of soulmates, fellow workers, and fellow soldiers. These are words that if, you, if we just dig into them a little bit, you'll see that they're, they're kind of relational words. It's the how these relationship and working together with the right attitudes are done. So the first one I said is soulmates. Now the NIV in verse 20, it's so disappointing how it translates it because it's, you know, he says, um, you know, I have no one else like him. 
it's, it's way too weak. The NASB, New American Standard, gets a bit better when, well, you know, we're kind of kindred spirits. You get a little bit better. The word actually is, we are one-souled. We are one-souled. We are soulmates together. We are bound so closely together in what? In this ministry and in this attitude of considering Others more important than ourselves are being concerned more about the mission and being concerned more about other people. We're one soul in this. We're bound together deeply. We're soulmates. We're soulmates. We, we can get in on this and we're soulmates in this. And he says that we're, we're fellow workers. It's this, this attitude of having other people more important than ourselves and the mission of Christ rising above, it's putting that on the ground that we are fellow workers. We put it into action. And as we just finished saying, that builds friendship. And then the final one, he says is, Epaphroditus is my fellow soldier. You know, this whole thing here in this, in this verse is a building uh, in intensity in verse 25. Necessary back to you, Paphroditus, my brother, we talked about that, in Christ, my co-worker, my fellow soldier. These are building to this climax of being a fellow soldier. Paul, it's a very rare word. He uses it of two people. He has all kinds of words he describes people he works with. But uh, this one, fellow soldier, he only uses with Archippus in the book of Philemon and here in Epaphroditus. And it's kind of this climax where he's saying this, and look, I want you to understand how specific and meaningful this is. It's a military reference, but the emphasis is on hardship and suffering. That's, why, that's what this fellow soldier, it's the idea of being in battle together and suffering the, the, the conditions of warfare and even maybe even dying. Paul's in prison, Epaphroditus gave up his health. Maybe, and if you share near-death experiences with people, there's a bond there that somehow is different than any other bond. Especially in warfare. We, she and I have that with Henry and Irene because Henry drove his head on into a drunk driver a bunch of years ago. <laughs> Just about killed us. But that, that near-death experience, I mean, there's a bond there. Like, it's just there. And this is what he's saying. That, listen, you understand that, that if we can understand that we are soulmates and our soul are together on this mission of Christ and we're actually putting it into action and you need to realize that this is going to be hard and it's going to cost you and there's going to be some suffering involved and there's going to be some uh, disappointments involved and sometimes it's going to feel like I'm so exhausted I could die. But when that happens, there's a bonding together that's different than any other bond. Talk to any military person that's been in, in war. And that's what Paul's saying is that, is that we are in this together. We're going all in on the mission of Christ as brothers and sisters. And when we do that, when we understand that being in Christ is being on this mission, not just you know, getting together every once in a while to sing a couple of songs, but when we are in the warfare against all the forces of darkness that bring destruction to people's lives and to society and to relationships, when we, when we are understanding that we are God's workmanship, God's soldiers, fellow soldiers in this battle, the Spirit of God binds us together and relational bonds are made. The next relational key that he has here is not just this working together in this mission, but it's this whole idea of mentoring relationships. 
You notice there, well, these mentoring relationships, you can't overestimate the importance of these things. And if you see there in verse 22, what Paul says about Timothy is, he says, hey, he says, you know what? He, he has worked to me, he has worked with me like a son and father in this ministry of God's. It's a funny thing. People kind of get afraid of this idea of mentorship. It's really, it's really quite fascinating. You know, I remember a few years ago, uh, George Barnett, he studies a lot of church stuff, sociology and stuff. And uh, he talked about how, how when, he, when he surveyed Christians, almost universally, people have had positive mentoring relationships in their life. You know, maybe you've been an apprentice or, or um, you know, you've been proctoring or, you know, whatever, articling or whatever, or somehow or somebody you've been on a team and you've had a coach. Almost everybody's had a positive mentoring experience. And almost nobody is ready to enter into one on the spiritual front. It's kind of this weird thing. It's kind of this weird thing, and yet Paul speaks so positively about this, this relational bond that he has with this younger man, Timothy. He says, he's like a son to me. He's like, I'm like a father to him. But we're afraid. I don't know if it's, we're, we're, sometimes we're afraid because we think, well, mentor, what have I got to offer? I don't know what to say. I, I don't know what to do. Or we're afraid of, yeah, if I say I'm a mentor, it's like getting married to the person. I don't want to give them the next 20 years of my life. <laughs> like this. Or, on the other way, maybe we're afraid to ask somebody to mentor us because we're afraid of rejection. Uh, no, you're not really worth the time. Thank you. Sorry. Ooh. I don't know what all the hesitancies are. But they're critical in our Christian development. To have informal, formal mentors, whatever the case may be. So, you know, one of the best um, courses I, I, I took involved a little part there on, on mentoring. And it was one of the most helpful things that they said is, the guy said. It's interesting. He was an interesting guy. He, uh, he came up through the United States Marine Corps. <laughs> and that's where, and so a lot of his stuff was in this. But he said, look, you know, when you're talking about mentoring, here's what you need to do to take away some of the fear in your life, either if somebody asks you to mentor them or if you want to ask somebody to mentor you. It's limited topic for limited time. Okay, you can put that down. Limited topic for limited time. Okay, that makes everybody feel safer. So if you see something in somebody's life, that man, you know what? That, that I, I just admire their communication skills. I, I admire how their generosity. I admire their patience. I admire, whatever it is, you know, you see something in somebody else's life, I said, boy, you know, I just feel in my spirit that God wants me to grow up in this. What you do is you go to that individual and you say, Murray, I don't know whether you realize this or not, but I recognize in your life just incredible patience. And I need to work on this in my life. So can we, can we schedule three lunches? where I just want to talk to you about, about patience. And I'll bring some questions, and if you want, I can turn to your head. But it'll just be three, three lunches I'll buy, and I just want to talk to you about how God has grown patience in your life. You see, does that make sense to you, right? So Murray is like, well, this rest of my life is an absolute disaster. I'm going bankrupt, and I don't have a job, and I suck at praying or whatever. But yeah, I guess I am a little patient, 
You see, you see how then they can say yes? And it's just, now who knows what would grow out of that? Who knows after those three lunches? Hey, well, let, let's, let's get it. Who knows? But it's limited topic, limited time. Okay, first thing about mentorship. And then to dive into it. You guys, when people have babies around here, they stand up here and they dedicate them to the Lord. And usually there's a part in there where we say we will be a spiritual family. We will stand with this brother and sister and help them to raise Junior Missy in the love of the Lord. We promise. Because we're family in Christ. And we need to do it. We need to do it informally, for sure. But there's also great opportunities to do it formally. This is why, you know, when, when David stands up here and says, hey, you know what, we're, we're still really short of, of Sunday school teachers. And Andrew stands up and says, hey, you guys, we've got enough guys, but we really need some mature Christian women who can just walk alongside some of these girls we've got coming in that, that have got esteem issues and the, <laughs> all the stuff that it's, oh, man, I am, thank God. You know, this is why, Paul, thank God, I'm, you know, the Jew rabbis, I'm not a woman. Teenage girls, I cannot, I cannot imagine God help them. God help them. The pressure that they face. And guys too, but man, oh man. And I stand up and says, hey, we need someone to come and mentor. It'll cost you three hours a week. Or we can divvy it up in three hours every two weeks. You know, I always remember an acquaintance of mine talked about, it was actually he used to go to the Alliance Church, and he talked about a guy who took a boys' class. And he started with this boys class when they were in early elementary. And he committed to travel with those boys. So he was a Sunday school teacher, Sunday school teacher, Sunday school teacher, youth leader, youth leader, youth leader, youth leader, with this group of boys. And this man, who by then, that time was in his late 30s, said, that guy, he is still a mentor of mine. He is still one of the biggest influences of my life. And it's a mutual relationship now. Because now that guy gets to bless the other guy. Don't rob yourself of the opportunity to build relationships by asking somebody, hey, can you show me how to do this? Or say, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. Mentoring. And the mentoring, don't, it's not just you know, older to, to younger. There's a whole pile of us needing mentoring on how to use food. I remember a number of, of uh, years ago, we did, a, we did a sheet around here. We said, hey, if, you, if you've got some kind of a skill, put yourself down, you're willing to help somebody with something, put that down. And if you need help with something, put that down, and we'll try and match you guys up, of which a bunch of people signed up, and two people took advantage of it. But I remember Jonathan says, you know what? I'll help parents understand the new math. I don't know if you remember this, you know, but a few years ago, this new way of doing math, I, don't, I didn't have kids, so I didn't have to worry about it. So, you know, he's saying, look, you know what, I'm a teacher, I'm a teacher, and there's a bunch of parents that are kind of confused with new math. I'll mentor them on how to help their kid in school with new math. See? See how it goes? 
And who knows what relationships can be built there. So it doesn't have to, it's not just older to younger and stuff. You know, and here's the part that really got me. Now, this, this I'm struggling with. I brought up a Bible study. You know, at our um, Tuesday morning prayers, as staff, when we pray for all of you with your requests, which you just need to put on those yellow cards in there, and we'll pray for you. And we pray for our kids that are wandering away from the Lord and all this kind of stuff. But we start with the proverb. And this is one, this topic's come up a few times, but Proverbs chapter 24, listen to this. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we do nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he, this is God, does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? You know what that saying is? This. You've got somebody in your life, in your sphere, and you see that they're heading towards disaster, and you don't step in, offer a little bit of mentorship, God holds you accountable. This is terrifying. <laughs> you know, we sat around that table as, as a bunch of preachers, and we're like, guys, uh, do we do this? And we all said, no, we don't. If somebody asks us, we might reluctantly say, well, you know, I don't know, and maybe, well, kind of, but you've got this. And, you know, there is this one passage. And da, 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 da. I'll tell you why. Because Proverbs says that this, but there's another bit of wisdom. It's secular wisdom. I heard years ago, uh, a woman giving her testimony came through some, I think it was addiction stuff, and she got out and, and she found herself in relational trouble because she was always talking to people about stuff when she saw them heading into addictions. And she said this statement. Unsolicited advice is always taken as a criticism. And we think, that's right. Anytime I've tried to say anything to anybody, <laughs> that really is blown up. So, you know, I said to the, my Bible study group, how do we, there's this tension here. How do I do it? You know, God holds me accountable. I can see somebody staggering towards slaughter, but I don't want to tell. You know, it's not, not to do. Uh, you know, the Bible says, it basically said, Monty, he said, well, you know, it's got to be somebody that's close to you, somebody that knows that um, you love them, that you're saying yes. And so I guess there's the truth to that. But, you know, as a staff, we're kind of convicted, you know, man, we don't, we don't step in as much as what we probably should. And I bet you, you don't either. People close to you, people that know, you know, you're going to say this, and it's going to be kind of, it's kind of a risky thing, because, ah, but say it. Because if you don't, they stagger towards slaughter. And you kind of wonder, well, man, how come nobody said anything to me? So there's these mentoring relationships. Next, C, is to build a bridge. Be a bridge builder. If you can't meet somebody's need or you don't have the answer or whatever, it's to put people who have something together with people who don't have that thing. And that's exactly what Epaphroditus did, right? Is that he was taking from the Philippian church all the way up to Paul, probably in Rome, maybe Ephesus, probably Rome, all that stuff that they needed. Why? Because he was this bridge he was helping. He didn't do it himself. He was bridging the need. He was putting these two people 
together in relationships. You know, I, I think it's a book by William Studevant. I looked it up. I got the book, but I didn't want to read the whole thing again. So I couldn't find the exact thing. But he told a story, I think it's him, about one of the most successful um, insurance salespeople in history. And I said, what they said about this guy is that what was interesting about him is that some of the reasons that he was most successful is that sometimes people would buy insurance policies from him that they didn't even need. You know why? Because as he was talking to somebody and he learned about their business or about their life or their whatever, and he saw some need in it, maybe it wasn't an insurance need, maybe it was, but some need in their life, and he knew Fred over here who had the resources to meet that need, some advice, some connections, some whatever, you know what he'd do? He'd just schedule a lunch for the three of them. And they wouldn't talk about insurance, they wouldn't talk about, they'd talk about what, what Bill needed and Fred had, and he'd just build this relational bridge together, and lo and behold, he became the most successful salesperson. Why? Because they appreciated it. And all of a sudden, the guy that he was trying to sell to had this relationship, and he felt so, so good about what he did about Fred, he'd buy some cheap insurance policy from him, even though he didn't need it. There's a power in being the bridge. You might not be able to know or have the resources or whatever to help somebody that's in your sphere of influence within your life, but that's okay because the chances are, if you're in the church, you know somebody who does. And you can, you can bridge that relationship and you can build a relationship between those two people and all of a sudden you are in the middle of it and building relationships for yourself as well as relationship for these two people. Fourth, have an open heart. Really it's the riskiest relational key is to have this open heart. Emotions. I mean, did you pick up some of these emotional words? Genuine interest. Distress for somebody else. Sorrow upon sorrow if things didn't go right. Great joy when they did. A longing for. A gladness. Anxiety for the sake of the other person. Honoring somebody. You see those words? These are emotional words. And emotions are necessary for deeper relationships. And we can't be afraid to have them. And we can't be afraid to show them. I don't know about you. But I'm an English boy. So I was raised as an English boy. You can have three things. You can be happy. You can be angry. Or you can be, that's it. That's what you're allowed. But our life and our hearts is so much bigger than that, isn't it? And some of us have to break out of what we've been socialized into containing and managing and allow ourselves to be emotionally connected to each other and to have the courage to say it. I remember when I was in, in YouTube one time, a guy by the name of Leo Klobodans came. Leo was a very, very interesting thing, fellow. And uh, he came to talk to us about I can't even remember what he was going to talk about. But what he did say is this, and this is what I remember. I was like, you know, 16 at the time. And, uh, and Leo said something or other, and he just, I can't remember, but this is the part I remember. He said, you have to love each other. And if you've got the guts... You need to say it. 
And I just remember this, this <laughs> you have to know this rough, you know, whatever, business guy, and, and somehow that really struck with me. You've got to love each other. And if you've got the guts, you need to say it. It's relationally necessary to not be afraid to have feelings and to not be afraid to connect them. Finally, last and then we're done. Fifth relational key is welcoming with joy and honoring others. To welcome with joy. Somehow there's some reason, that it seems that there's some trepidation for Epaphrodites to go back to, to Philippi. We're not sure why, but that's why Paul has to say, you know, I know you wanted Timothy to come and I'm going to send Timothy and I'm going to come sooner or later, but I've got to send Epaphrodites to you and, and maybe it's because you sent him to take Timothy's place and to look after me and he was your gift to me and all those things and then he got sick and now he's health continent, so he's got to go back and maybe there's a sense of failure. I mean, there's all kinds of speculation, but somehow there was, there was some trepidation, some hesitancy for Epaphrodites to go back and so as the Paul says listen you need to welcome him with joy I remember I went with a Compassion Canada to Peru and we went into this slum where they just started the program there they, they hadn't been able to go in there for years because it was very violent and it was very dangerous but a, a, a preacher went in there and they established a church and, and out of this neighborhood with Compassion's help and so on they, they drove out the gangs that were controlling this neighborhood in Peru so it's quite an amazing story Anyway, I remember we pull up in this bus and we get off the bus and here's this church and all these people and they're lining the street and lining the stairs up into the building and they're cheering and they're singing and they're waving flags and they're you know, doing this whole, this whole kind of emotional deal that those folks are a bit more uh, free to do and we went in and they had this great worship service and everybody got a present, a handmade present. Like honestly, it was, it was kind of embarrassing, you know, especially, you know, you don't do this in England unless your football team wins, then you can <laughs> burn that. Like, but, but somehow it's one of the most memorable things in my life. This welcoming with joy and to honor one another. You know, we need to celebrate each other like that person is a gift from God to me. Because they are. And when somebody comes into this fellowship and somebody comes into our life, we need, to, we need to think of them as a gift from God because they are a gift from God and we need to treat them as we would treat a gift from God. And not only that, but there's a question we should ask ourselves. I remember I was at a leadership retreat one time and the guy that was leading it talked about this whole thing about being a gift from God. And I remember the Holy Spirit worshiping, whispering to me, Alan... Do people experience you as a gift from me? Is that, the, is that the, a driving impulse of your life? That when you go into a room, when you go into the store, when you go into the church, when you go into your neighborhood, when you go into your family, are people experiencing you as a gift from me? That they can welcome with joy because you're a gift? It's quite a question. Quite a thing to have in our mind as we go through this next week. Am I going to be experienced, or how can I be experienced as a gift by this person as I enter into this situation at work or wherever the case may be? We welcome people with joy and honor them as a gift from God, and we, by the power of the Spirit, allow Him to work in our lives so that we are experienced as a gift to others. God does not want people to be lonely. 
He created us as relational beings because he's a relational God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. At the center and the core of his, the essence of his being is that is relationship. And God wants us to be, in, we all have different relational needs. Some need just one friend, two friends, some people need 20 friends, whatever the case may be. But, but God doesn't want us to be lonely and to be alienated and to be living in a relational deficit. And to live a life worthy of the gospel is to live a life in healthy, good relationships. When you think about to live a life worthy, sometimes it's easy for us to think of a bunch of moral rules that we are supposed to obey. But essentially it's to relate well to each other as Christ relates to us. It's to follow the example of the Philippians and of Jesus and of Paul and of Timothy and of Epaphrodites and to well, relate well. This is kingdom work. And the work we put into in our relationship with each other is experienced by the God of heaven as an act of worship, as a sacrifice of praise. So this week, for me, it kind of boils down to this. There's all piles of stuff, but the question I'm going to carry with me is, am I receiving this person as a gift from God? And it might be a bit of a prickly gift that you have to unwrap. Am I receiving this person as a gift from God and relating to them in this way? And am I, in the strength of the Spirit, being the person that will be experienced by the other as a gift of God to them? Almighty God, uh, relationships are, are key to our life and, and we find in them the greatest joy and sometimes the greatest sorrow. It makes sense because at, at your core you are relational and so you created us to be relational. And we know, we know, Lord, so many folks just feel totally disconnected. And you established the church so that that wouldn't happen. But it's still hard for us at times. And some of us are better at it than others. But all of us can grow in it. And so, Father, as we go into this next week, help us uh, to receive people to welcome people with joy as a gift from you and to treat them as such. And help us, Lord, to, to be a gift to others, whether it's mentoring or as a bridge or as a servant or just plain brother and sister, a fellow, a fellow soldier who rejoices and suffers with each other's victories and defeats. Teach us, God, to put these relational keys into our life in an ever-expanding way. We pray through Christ. Amen.